following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. come to John chapter 4 in our considerations of this gospel, and we come to another one-on-one conversation by Jesus with an individual. Just as he met with Nicodemus in John 3, now a very different person in John 4 in what is really an even more extensive uh, back-and-forth conversation of questions and replies and interchange which I'll hope to treat in about three different parts, I think, as we approach this chapter. Today, looking at the first 15 verses of John chapter 4. Pretty well-known passage. Sometimes we have to dig deep and pay close attention and ask more questions of things that are pretty familiar. But God always has more to teach us. Listen to His Word, John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And this is God's Word. In the wilderness journey in the book of Exodus, you find numerous times the people of Israel being 
tested by God over the issue of water to drink. The miracle of manna, of course, to a large extent and for a large period of time, took care of the food question. How do you feed several hundred thousand people on a wilderness trek? But you can imagine the water question was always there every single day. Human bodies have to have water. Livestock that accompanied them had to be watered. And God was able, in a way, to have that exist as a test. Did the Israelites actually trust God or not? Day by day, there was a test. And many times, he led them to water when they thought they couldn't get it. But the next day or the next week, they doubted again. Would God take care of us another time or not? And we find them turning against Moses sometimes, crying out things like, Why, Moses, have you brought us out here only to die in the wilderness? It's a land of thirst and a land of death. And they complained that way and did not trust God. Well, you know that Moses, exasperated with them, one time struck a rock in the wilderness and abundant water flowed out to refresh the people. All the way over into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, you find that the Apostle Paul is interpreting that Old Testament event of striking the the rock and the water coming out, and said something that sounds kind of amazing about it. He said, they, the Israelites, drank from the spiritual rock which accompanied them in the desert, and that rock was Christ. Here's a New Testament interpretation that it was Christ, the pre-incarnate reality of who Christ would be. He hadn't been seen on earth, of course, in the Old Testament Exodus days. And yet, figuratively, it was God through His Son who was working in advance to provide spiritual need of His people. And indeed, in the Bible, humanity's great appetite and need is depicted as thirst for God, not just for water to intake as we have it in plastic bottles every day, but rather the way in which Psalm 42 says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And that basic thirst, interestingly, is something that many people try to satisfy and slake by other devices and other provisions, always to their dissatisfaction and disappointment. Well, I've said that John 4 opens with a conversation, just as John 3 did, two chapters, Jesus in dialogue with an individual, and there are others like this to come. But what a vast contrast between these two conversations, primarily in terms of the two people that Jesus is talking to. In the case of Nicodemus, chapter 3, we had this proud ruler, religiously trained, very competent man who thought he knew his subject and, and could almost condescendingly, although respectfully, speak to Jesus and hold his own ground, you would have thought, although he didn't do it. But now in Samaria, we have a woman, and of course, women are We're given a second place in that society, and particularly in this country, as I'll mention about Samaria in a minute, a woman who is unschooled, has no rabbinical training, no Old Testament training, 
uh, who is, we find later in this chapter, a kind of social outcast because of her lifestyle. The text notes that she was at the well at the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. Now, you think about it just in practical terminology. If you have to draw water for your house and you live in a very hot climate where it heats up way over 100 degrees in the middle of the day, when are you going to go to the well and get water? You're going to go early in the morning when you first get up but it's still cool or later at night when the sun has gone down. And that indeed is when people got water. If you were going to the well at noon, there was an unusual reason. And the normal speculation of most interpreters is that it was because this woman was in her position of a kind of social outcast. She really didn't want to mingle with other people and any time she did, she got a hard time from them and so she came because of her isolation. And notice too, this woman is never even named, making her even all the more obscure. But guess what? The proud leader... The social outcast without a name, they both needed Christ. They both had an equal God-shaped vacuum in them that needed to be filled. I've heard people ask me in the past time, sometimes folks will stand back and fold their arms in a little bit skeptical frame, and they'll say, Pastor, you know, sometimes I get the impression from listening to preachers that Whatever Christ can offer and the gospel can do for a Christian believer is being oversold. In other words, you fellows tell us, you know, trust Jesus as my Savior and you'll have great peace and you'll make wise decisions and uh, you'll, you'll hopefully have good relationships and, of course, above all, eternal life. And it seems like there's so many good things to be had by being a Christian and trusting in Christ. But Isn't it true that sometimes you're promising us more than Christianity can deliver? What do we actually get out of so-called drinking from the well of the grace of God available in Christ? And are preachers overselling it? What's the reality, I've been asked? Well, I think this text speaks to that some, and let's consider it together. The first thing I want to see here in John 4 is to assert to you that Christ is a true thirst quencher. Now, we set the scene here with Samaria. I won't go into a long thing about Samaria, but you do need to know a little bit about it. It's a, an area just north of Jerusalem and just north of Judea, the area where Jesus moved about in Galilee and so on. And it, it has a long history. It goes back more than seven centuries before the New Testament day of Jesus. When this that was the northern kingdom of Israel was first to be captured by outsiders. The Assyrians came in 722 B.C., knocked the whole kingdom down, captured it, took away most of the people, left a small minority of people, then brought in their own slaves and their own Assyrian leaders. And, of course, over time, all those people intermingled. And what resulted were people that you might say religiously and socially were, well we would call them unkindly half-breeds. They were part Jewish, but they really weren't accepted as true Jews. They were part Assyrian, but even the Assyrians probably somewhat looked down at them. They took the religion of Israel and said, 
we only accept the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. We don't accept the prophets. We don't accept the other historical books. We don't even accept the Psalms and Proverbs. So they had a truncated religion. They put up their own altar. It was different than Jerusalem. In effect, they worshiped a different god. And the Jewish people, who of course were in the southern kingdom based in Jerusalem, looked at these folks and said, ugh, we don't want anything to do with them. They're just as unlike us as anything could be. And uh, people who made journeys north actually went around quite a ways just to walk around Samaria, not pass through or be contaminated by the place. Well, we find Jesus making a journey that it says he must go through or he had to go through. And most people would sort of do that quickly and not, you know, you didn't want to stay in any housing in Samaria or, if possible, eat with any Samaritans. You just wanted to move right on through. Here's Jesus. And as we meet him waiting at the well, it's an old well that goes back to Jacob's time, he hardly seems like the person who I would call a thirst quencher because what's emphasized about him is his own need. He's sitting at a well in the heat of the day. He's tired from a journey. The disciples have gone to shop for food, and he's just resting there trying to find some shade, needing a drink. A thirsty man, a worn-out man. And you would think, how does a man like this have anything to give very much to others? This, after all, is the same Jesus who would on another occasion say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He needed rest right here for his own weariness. And along comes a woman ready to draw water, and Jesus politely says, may I please have a drink from the water that you draw. He spoke not only, of course, out of real thirst and real need, but out of opportunism for ministry learn from Jesus about evangelistic opportunity. Sometimes a way to engage with another person's life is to ask of them some small favor, a question, some way that you can break the ice, if you will, engage with a life may lead to further conversation and ability to talk to them even about the Lord. Well, quickly in this situation, Jesus the thirsty traveler becomes Jesus the great provider and satisfier. After all, how did John 1 open? It opened by telling us that he was very God of very God. He was one with the Father, one with the Creator who made oceans and made great rivers. And yet here he is, a weary man, needing a small drink himself. The woman can't put this together. The paradox is too much for her. And and so she gets a little sarcastic, I think you'd have to say, when, when uh, he speaks about uh, giving her something or speaks about if you knew who was talking to you, this kind of offends her. And she says, well, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. Surely you're not greater than him. Well, we know the opposite is true, don't we? We know that Jacob was a mere spiritual midget in the timeline of things compared to this one who was very God of very God sitting here at the well. Indeed, if you knew who it was who speaks to you, you would know that he's the thirst 
quencher. What a paradox that Christ is presented as both feeling our need, tasting the weakness that we have when we're tired and hungry and physically somehow needy. He went through all that, and yet he was the creator. He was the provider. And so he can be the source of all divine good and be the giver of every good and perfect gift. He understands our need, and he's able to provide our need. Well, let us go deeper into this text in the second place and see that Christ's gift of what is called here, the key two-word phrase of this whole passage is the two words, living water. Christ's gift of living water can be ours by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you're aware on an everyday basis of how various manufacturers, companies that market beverages of all kinds market the beverage to make it stylish, uh, to emphasize its taste, to emphasize how refreshing it is, or just be clever somehow to get us to buy their beverage. I have liked the uh, advertisements that have been out a number of years now. Of You'll see a full-page picture of a celebrity with a white milk mustache. You know, they drank the milk and they had the milk mustache. And then just a little tiny message, so-and-so drinks milk kind of a powerful message. These, even these famous celebrities need milk. Or, of course, you all know that Coca-Cola is the real thing, even if you happen to prefer Pepsi and know the difference, which some of us do. Or maybe you're an aficionado of Starbucks, and 30 years ago, you never would have thought it possible that you would go into a coffee seller uh, and you would pay five, six, eight dollars for a designer cup of latte or whatever it is that you happen to like. But you do it today. And so beverages are marketed to us, but without really blanket accusing the companies that the dairies and the soft drink manufacturers and the coffee places and everybody else, I'm not accusing them of dishonesty, but, you know, isn't it a fact that every single one of them cannot, in the ultimate way, satisfy the need that they're addressing with their product, right? In fact, their whole business is based on the fact that you'll be satisfied for a moment and then you'll come back in a couple hours and have another one and have another one. I, I know a member of this church, I worry about the amount of Coca-Cola he consumes in a day and I'm not going to name him. I'll let the innocent stay innocent. But uh, you know, the, the key is that you come back and you come back and you drink it again and again and again since the satisfaction that's given is only for a moment or an hour or a little more. So they can count on you becoming a return customer. Well, that's what's going on here at the well at Sychar in John 4 where we're reminded that every material supply of basic human needs in this world, and not only thirst, but I think we can generalize it, every material thing that supplies some deep human need might give satisfaction for a little bit, and then we have to come back, and we have to come back, and we have to come back. That's true with food. It's true with sex. It's true with possessions or money. Whatever. There's no permanent satisfaction. You go to someone like King Solomon, the king of Israel, who 
You remember all the wealth. Solomon's wealth was absolutely legendary. Uh, the prince or the, the queen of Sheba came from Africa because she couldn't believe the stories that were told about Solomon. She had to check it out and see if it was real, that this man ate his food off of solid gold plates, that he had hundreds of wives, that he had chests full of money and jewels and could literally buy anything. You know, you think of there any satisfaction if Solomon somehow found out that in his day they made wonderful wine in Gaul, which would become France, he probably had a 747 hired to fly in boxes of wine every day and could have afforded it very easily if there had been 747s. No problem getting anything he wanted. But isn't Solomon the very same author in Scripture who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? And said as he considered all the good things that paraded through his life, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. It all leads to nothing. I'm bored. I'm jaded. Nothing I've had in this world, and I've had the best and the most, has satisfied me. Possessions glitter with a promise of ownership. Oh, if I had that brand of car, I'd never have car envy again. Oh, if I only had that level of income, oh, that would be fantastic. I'd be absolutely well provided for. The Scripture shows us so many ways that everything that provides something satisfies something of our outer being, whether it be our, our tongues, our taste buds, uh, our sexual appetites, our greed for materialism, whatever, we're going to have to come back and come back and come back because we're not satisfied. And so we have, Tucker referred to it earlier in the service, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, that says from the Lord, Lord's own prophecy through Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me as the spring of living water, and two, they have dug their own cisterns. But guess what? They're broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, when Jesus introduces this two-word phrase, living water, he's putting something new on the table. What is he talking about? He's already taught us in the previous chapter that men and women need a new birth and that that new birth comes through the Spirit of God working upon the soul of man awakening him to see Christ and put faith in Christ and therefore becoming all new. Now he's speaking about this thing, living water, and I would contend to you that it's related. It's simply in some ways another way of talking about the new birth, the new life that God by his Holy Spirit gives in a man or woman, renewing them from within. Not just handing them a plastic bottle of water and saying, here, you're thirsty, have your thirst satisfied for the next half hour. Living water, the implication of what living water is, water that moves, water that flows, not stagnant. And by the way, I would remind you that in the Old Testament, the prescription was if you were going to have a ritual cleansing of your hands or something to be ready to give a sacrifice to God, the your hands had to be cleansed in moving water, not stagnant water. Somebody 
you know, they didn't have a nice faucet. You could turn on a mowing faucet or something. But somebody would pour it over your hands and you would wash your hands with poured out water. That was living water, so to speak. Now Jesus is saying a similar thing. You need living water, water that splashes, water that's alive. But you need more than just literal water, of course. We know he's talking about this symbolically. So what does it symbolize? If you see a symbol, you better know what it addresses. Well, in Scripture and in this book of John, we can know that living water means the Holy Spirit. Now you say, how am I so sure of that? It's very specifically indicated in another verse that we haven't read, ahead in John chapter 7, verse 37. There Jesus says, whoever believes in me, streams of living, flowing water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Holy Spirit. If anybody was in doubt, it's spelled out there in John seven thirty-seven. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, I am the living water. He's going to use bread for a symbol pretty soon by chapter 6, and he'll say, I am the living bread. And later he's going to say, I am the good shepherd, and things like that. He does not say, I am the living water, because the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus is saying, whoever seeks me and has my spirit will be doing what those Old Testament folks were doing, not just washing hands, but being washed from within with water that flows from the righteousness of God, washed truly as only God can wash a person. It's a divine cleansing that he's talking about, not a hand cleansing that you have to do in another hour. Isaiah 12, verse 3 promises believers, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There are many such verses where we could talk about the giving of salvation and the cleansing of our souls in terms of water and washing from the Bible. But beyond that initial idea that washing from sin, receiving Christ and receiving eternal life, what we call justification, there's an indication that Jesus is saying, look, the Holy Spirit does more than that, more than just washing you once and for all in Christ, great thing that that is. There's a sense in which he's a constantly flowing stream or spring in the life of a believer, constantly providing refreshment and cleansing. Guidance from God, power from God, joy and hope from God are all things that we look to the Holy Spirit to provide for us. And you know, you could go off on several branches of this and think about things like what Paul says in Ephesians 5:18, where he's teaching about the Holy Spirit. And Paul does indeed teach that it's the Holy Spirit that brings salvation and, and brings that initial cleansing from sin that we call justification. But in Ephesians 5.18, he says what sounds like an odd thing in the tense of the verb he uses. He says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit continually be flowing in your life, flowing for refreshment and renewal. Because any human being inhabited by the Spirit of God should learn, indeed, that the Spirit 
acts like a fountain in his life. It's an old commentator, Alexander McLaren, lived about a century ago, and he tended to summarize things very well sometimes. McLaren said this. Let me quote him. If you have Christ in your heart, he wrote, then life is possible, peace is possible, joy is possible. Yes, even a calm death is possible. Everything your soul can desire, it already possesses. You, the Christian, can live, he said, like an army beleaguered by fierce enemies garrisoned inside a stout castle in whose courtyard is a sparkling spring fed from an underground channel which your enemy will never discover nor be able to cut off. You see what he was saying? The Holy Spirit is like what every, you know, in medieval days when they had a castle, well, boy, it was great if you had thick walls to keep the enemy out and arrow slots to shoot at the enemy and enough food in your barns. All that was good. But guess what? If you didn't have a well inside that castle, you were sunk. You were not going to endure a siege of, of weeks or months, possibly, that, that could come. What McLaren is saying is the Christian is, is well garrisoned in God and in the castle of the Christian life, there's this, what he calls a sparkling spring fed from an underground channel. My dad, years ago, taught me a word that sounded strange to me as a boy. We were involved in some water issues, and, and he taught me about an artesian well. I'm sure we've got a civil engineer here who's going to correct me later because I didn't really do my research here. But if I remember what my dad taught me, an artesian well was one that was not just dug down deep enough to the water table so that it could pump water up because if you have a non-artesian well, is my understanding that in drought times, the water table could go down and your well would go dry. But an artesian well has actually an underground source, even an underground river or an abundant spring where you don't have to worry, in effect, about the water table dropping. Come tell me, engineers, whether I got it right, okay? But that's what the Christian has in the Holy Spirit. An artesian source into the life of God. When hard times come and the water table of life goes down, it does not dry up. And God still brings his refreshment to the thirst of our souls. So here in verse 14, I tell you this thirdly, we see that the satisfaction of the living water of the Holy Spirit is not simply for 80 or 90 years that we may live in this life. Satisfaction in Christ by the Holy Spirit is eternal. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. He tells this woman, whoever drinks the water I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will be a spring welling up to eternal life. And this woman does a great turnaround right there. You see, in her rejoinder about Jacob, I hear her being pretty sarcastic. Who do you think you are? You know, do you think you're as great as Jacob, our father Jacob? I don't, you know, I may be wrong. It's hard always to get the tone of someone just from words on paper, but I don't think that sarcasm is present when she speaks in verse 15 and says, Sir, Give me this water that I might see. She doesn't understand. She thinks he's, he's talking about something she can have in her bucket. 
But she's saying, please, where do I get this? Give me this water that I don't have to come every day and haul water from this well. And I think this woman begins to show us that the way to get this provision of living water is to do what? Ask for it. Ask for it. This is a gift that's kept on the lowest shelf, you know. I can remember when our kids were small, there were things that were always on the high shelf, whether it was the pantry or our bedroom closet, you know, the presents that uh, they weren't supposed to see before Christmas that, by the way, we've been told now that they're in their 30s that every year they knew where the presents were and what was in the bag um, weeks before Christmas. Uh, You parents, you're going to have to find a safe deposit vault to keep them out. But this is a gift that's on the low shelf, right, where anybody can see it and say, may I have that? I would love to have that living water. And you see, we're being promised that this isn't a a drink for today. It's something that will last and last and last. It is, if you will, the gift that keeps on giving. Because this joy in knowing Christ and being united to Him and being refreshed and learning of Him is something that goes on and on and on into the eternal future. I think some people have been sold a wrong vision of heaven by the idea that, you know, when we will see Christ face to face, what a wonderful thing that will be. I don't want to devalue that for a moment. But some people would would act as if, oh, bang! I see Christ face to face at death. Wow! I can't ever know more than I know in that moment. I don't understand it that way. I think so great and so rich is our God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that by the Holy Spirit we are going to be going on and on discovering more of Christ, more of His wonders, His personality, His character, His glory, on and on and on into the eternal future. Maybe I take one hint of that from a symbol that's in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. This water symbolism continues there. Revelation 22.1 tells us of, quote, the river of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. What is that if it isn't living water? What is that telling us if it isn't telling us that a continual flow of delight and joy and refreshment for our lives will be ours even in heaven, in eternal heaven? Oh, you folks may have such a static idea of heaven. You know, I get there, I'm saved from sin, I'm spared from the wrath of God. Hallelujah, now I'm bored. You're not going to be bored. The living discovery of Christ himself is going to be an ever-changing kaleidoscope of delights in the presence of God. Nothing will ever satisfy human longings and dissatisfaction better than drinking the gift of the Holy Spirit even in eternity. We'll experience Christ himself. Are you telling me you're going to get tired of him? Are you telling me that you're going to take the full measure of Christ a half an hour after you meet him face to face? I would 
much rather understand that there are so many delights to be discovered that it will be like standing under a waterfall of the joy of God for all eternity. Because in giving us the Holy Spirit, our God and Father makes this soul refreshment available to those who come to him by faith in Jesus. And he invited us to that, by the way, long before Jesus even came. This invitation is all the way back in Isaiah chapter 55. It says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, you don't have to pay for it. Come, buy and eat without money. Come to me, says God. Hear me, says God, so that your soul might live. What a wonderful invitation. Why would you ever turn it down? Our Father, I thank you for the mystery and the wonder of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand your spirit, and yet you reveal this reality that you are with us, you, God, the Spirit, are with your people who have trusted in Christ. And that Spirit is to us like a fountain, like a spring in the center of our lives to provide all our needs. Father, refresh your people who are stale and dry. Let them turn to you and delight once more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.